Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. Like it or not, it's election season in the United States, and we are facing some interesting choices, um, not only uh, that affect Americans, but really the issues involved are connected to what folks around the world are experiencing, issues with leadership, authoritarianism, the future possibilities for democracy, dealing with massive issues like climate change and globalization, and then um, more individual issues like how we structure our economies in our sovereign states that protect the vulnerable and um, right the wrongs of the past. In light of these issues, I reached out to four members of the Spectrum community, all academics and professionals, to hear what they have to say about these issues and more. Um, In the first conversation that you'll hear now, I was honored to have Lisa Clark Diller, chair of the history department at Southern Adventist University, talk with me and Jason Hines, who writes for Spectrum Online as a regular columnist, uh, Jason, professor in the Department of Healthcare Administration at Advent Health University. And I think it's significant that um, Lisa, or Dr. Diller, um, got her PhD from University of Chicago in early the early modern era and uses that in her discussion to help us reflect on kind of the longer, uh, get a longer perspective on things. And Jason Hines did his PhD at Baylor University in looking at church state issues, obviously very relevant to um, our time. And um, I think always Uh, important for Adventists to connect their faith to their politics. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And the next one uh, features Vanessa Corradera, who is associate professor in the English department at Andrews University. And uh, she is talking with Courtney Ray, who is an ordained minister and a practicing psychologist in New York City and is the president of the Society for Black Neuropsychology. And I'd love to get your feedback on these uh, conversations. Thank you very much. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I have the distinct privilege of welcoming two experts to talk with us today about American politics and the issues that they care about. And I want to introduce 
Um, Dr. Lisa Clark Diller, Chair of the History Department at Southern Adventist University. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for including me in the conversation, Alex. It's fun to be here. Yeah, and our second guest, no um, stranger to the uh, community of Spectrum as well, Dr. Jason Hines, who's a assistant professor in the Department of Healthcare Administration at Advent Health University. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me, Alex. So what I'd like to do at the beginning is just quickly, um, you know, describe what is keeping you awake at night um, when you're thinking about the state of America. What uh, What's the biggest issue on your mind these days? Wow, that's a loaded question, Alex. I'm trying to lean into hope all the time. So I have to... <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I know I, I know what it is, and it's my concern about the breakdown of trust um, in society um, for at large. There's a lot of ways we can talk about that and where it is. And I'm not, I'm not a person. I get to be a historian when I'm not talking about current events <laughs> with Alex Carpenter. Um, and I know that there have been other times in the past where this has happened. So I tend to not be um, as pessimistic, um, perhaps, because I have some context. But I think, I mean, when we, when we study liberal democracies, and I'm a fan of liberal democracies for the most part, um, as opposed to many other forms of government we've experienced, and um, what makes that happen a lot is the kind of trust that civil society provides for us in voluntary organizations, and they measure this in countries where democracy seems to not be flourishing, they can track it to how much people are trusting each other and um, how much trust they have in the government or other institutions. So I would say that I'm concerned about the decline of that in our society and what that, how that bodes for the future of a liberal democracy. Yeah, I think that decline in in uh, trust of public institutions and each other is is really key. Uh, Jason, um, do you trust um, Americans to make good decisions about their leaders these days? No, and I never have. I guess I'm going to be pessimist in this conversation. The no, I. I um I actually have a very similar concern to uh to the concern uh that Dr. Diller mentioned. But I twist it a little bit. The thing that I the thing that keeps me awake and this actually leads to why I think um uh why I think Americans can't make great decisions is that we now live in a society of concurrent and sometimes mutually exclusive realities. And it is because the advent of technology and social media and all of the things that uh, people complain a lot about, which I actually don't have all of those complaints, but this is something that comes from that, is we have the ability to curate the information that we receive to such an extent that 
we are now no longer working from the same base of facts. And when we lose the ability to do that, we lose the ability to trust each other and we lose the ability to come to any sort of compromise. When we are working from fundamentally different pictures of what is happening in the world, that is something that does not bode well for our ability to communicate with one another and therefore to come to meaningful solutions to our problems together because we can't agree on what is happening in the world that needs to be addressed. And it's because we're coming from a place where we are no longer hearing the same set of information. One of the things that has fascinated me for almost about a year now, uh, anecdotally, is how many conversations I have with people where I talk to them about something that has happened that I assumed everybody knew because it's, you know, it has been ubiquitous in my social circles or informational circles only to find that this person had never heard of such a thing. Mm, yeah. And, and that type of breakdown, I think, just does not bode well for us. But to go back to the original question, Alice, I also think it's why we can't make good decisions. Because we're not, we don't have the full array of facts in front of us. And if we don't have the full array of facts in front of us, how can we make good decisions? Well, and it's also like, this is part of the problem with democratization. Um, a history, a book that... Um, uh, made some big waves when it came out six or seven years ago, the unintended reformation by a Catholic mm-hmm. professor at, at Notre Dame, who basically is arguing that when you start saying, Oh, people can interpret the Bible for themselves. Guess what happens? Like you have radical disintegration of authority. And so, you know, as somebody who's also very tempted by and frequently identifies as, you know, a, political anarchist of the Christian variety, um, I, you know, one hand, like, sure, you know, disintegrate all, who's, who can be in charge? Like, no hierarchy, let's get rid of it all. And yet, part of how you could have common conversations where everyone can be talking about some of the same things is because the sources of information and all of the facts are centralized, you know, and that there's an authority that does that. So part of the good things that we all like about democracy and freedom and individual individualism and individual autonomy is this and combine that with the technology to do it is, you know, even on my, on my campus, I'm sure it's true on yours too, Jason, and I'm happy for us to be on a first name basis here um, is uh, the fact that when I was in a college student, there was sort of a pop culture that most people knew about, you know, and that we could have all these references there are some things that are still kind of unified and that all the students feel like they know about that's going on in terms of pop culture. But also there are so many subcultures that there, those things are much fewer than they were when I was a student. And again, I, I don't know if that's a negative thing or not. You know, I'm also not terribly pessimistic about all of these diverse ways that we have knowledge, but then we also have to deal with the out, the fallout of that, which is, you know, we don't all have the same information. It's like this, the sadness that some people feel for the fact that we don't all use the same version of the Bible in our language when we're reading, because it's harder for us to do, you know, 
speak verses together in unison or have a phraseology that we can use and everyone knows where it came from, you know, like, like the King James Version was at one point. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to have to just be tied to the King James Version, but you, can, you lose something in terms of unity and sort of shared systems of trust, shared sources that we all kind of agree on. So it is a, it's just Pandora's box. Um, potentially in a good way, but also we, we can't, we can't, we, we're going to lose something there and we have lost it. And, and the thing is, I'm okay with, I guess I'm okay with the splintering in abstract. But the thing that sort of bothers me about the splintering is not the splintering in and of itself, but the unwillingness of us uh, as individuals to then be broad-minded in our streams of information. Because the problem is not so much to me, and I think I would probably agree with you a little bit about being a fan of, of you know, the fact that there are different versions of the Bible, or being a fan of the fact that there are bunches of ways that you can get information, uh, as, opposed to, as opposed to the information being concentrated in the hands of a few. My problem isn't there. My problem is then um, our willingness to confirm our own biases uh, by then curating that information to only the things that may, that already make sense to us. And so let's let's talk about it in brass tacks, right? Um, the 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 pool of people who read both the Washington Post and Fox News is small. <laughs> right like that 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 type of that type of that type of um like i said sort of broad-minded curation that at least says let me see what the other side is saying Beyond- even, jason even those two things that you're saying are very old school like yeah. that's not oh, absolutely. those are those are hierarchical authoritative sources within there within their realms that not a lot of people actually are even reading those things, even if they're only reading one and not the other. That's, that is fair. And the reason why I use them was because they're old school in the, in the sense of let me pull the examples that I think people would be able to understand what I'm saying very quickly, but you're, but, but you're right. Like I could easily have said, um, you know, uh, raw story and Breitbart, which even Breitbart is, is a little old guard. Um, is or is quickly becoming old guard uh, or red state. Red state is probably a little bit of a newer one that that I could use. You know, there. So the the <laughs> it'd be interesting to find out how many people are li- listening to this knew all of those things that I just said. <laughs> right, right. You know that that splintering, like I said, the splintering in abstract, as as I think you said, Lisa, is is something that I'm is something that I would normally be for, and I think I still am in abstract. Except for that, what I know is happening is that one side reads their stuff, the other side reads their stuff, and then we argue with each other from different platforms of information and understanding. And what that means is that at the end of the day we're never going to be able to convince each other because then there's another step, which is each side, uh, certainly I would argue because of my own biases, one side more than the other, right? But each side does a little bit of saying, 
the other side is illegitimate. That's that's right. Yeah, that's right. So it's not so it's not just oh that's another way for you to get your information. It's like no, that is trash information that you're getting. If you're reading that stuff over there, so then you get into a conversation with someone, and they'll say to you. If you're citing the Washington Post, just to keep this example, I don't think anyone's actually said this to me, but just as an example, if you're citing the Washington Post, I'm not even paying attention to you. Mm-hmm. If you're citing Fox News, I'm not even paying attention to you because I presume that that side is lying, is not telling you accurate information. Um, and once we get there, it's going to be hard for us as a unit, as a group to be able to come to common solutions about things. And democracy is sort of based on the goodwill that says we're willing to come to solutions together. And I would say, like, I, I get to side, there's a history of news starts in the 17th century, which is my area of expertise in the British world. And news was always assumed to be uh, politicized. So it, you always right. had, like, multiple... It's only in this moment that we had in the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, where there was this notion that somehow news should be neutral and take all sides on, that we developed this, I think, romanticized notion of news and, and, authority, and authority of what could happen. Like, one of my mentors wrote a book called How the News Makes Us Dumb about the news revolution of the 17th century, where, like, the, the periodicity of it, like, the fact that you need to... Um, like constantly keep buying something makes it problematic. I, I guess to bring this around to Adventists and politics, one of the things that I would say is this, uh, this idea that there's uh, some authorities, because even if you have like people that are only reading their one newspaper, which is used to be, there'd be two newspapers in a town, one-on-one political side, whether you're talking about England or Germany or the U.S. or whatever, mm-hmm. and the other on the other side, and people didn't read the other newspapers, and the notion of of um, there being like goodwill on the other side or the other side being our enemy, I, I think that is that's been it's brought. I mean, people really disagreed so much politically that they fought a war or two over it in the 18th and 19th century in our country. So again, I don't want to romanticize how much people were willing to take on the goodwill and say, oh, they mean well um, of the other political side compared to now. But one of the things that we did have more in the past is a sense of, again, who is the authority? And not, again, we're academics here on this call, and we kind of think we have a little bit of expertise. And we do think expertise matters. Like, even I do end up being in an echo chamber sometimes. An echo chamber is in my own discipline, an echo chamber within academia, you know, within people that I consider to be experts and I have people, no, I, I have people who recommend history podcasts or history books to me. And I find myself, I'm just going to be totally honest here, being a little bit snobby and going, oh, that person's not really a historian. I don't really need one. I was, I'd rather read a book by a historian on this, you know, if you don't mind, like when it comes to history, which is a bit snobby, like, not like that somebody who isn't trained as a historian can't do history. And the same thing, I think, is one of the things as, as Seventh-day Adventists that we have, okay, okay, if we think about the Reformation and everybody interpret the Bible for themselves, um, we still have this authority around the text of Scripture, um, you know, which we say is authoritative. We might, we might differ on what that exactly means for us individually, but it allows for us to have a common conversation. And I think that's part of the challenge that we're facing 
in our radically egalitarian world that we have today, which is that there's really no expertise. Maybe there's no facts, you know, um, but there's no, you know, anybody's version of this is as good as anyone else. And I try to convince my students that are dead set on the fact I had a little discussion with one of my students in uh, my historiography class this past spring, where, you know, I was saying, like, it was a fact that, you know, there's this myth that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. And a couple of the students were like, wait, what do you mean? Like, no, <laughs> and I said, no historians, no historians are arguing that this wasn't about slavery, that it was about states' rights. There's nothing historians do. And one of my students checked me and said, who do you consider a historian? Because he went to a, a national park or a state park, and the guy that was taking them around this particular park said that it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. And, uh, I mean, I, I kind of found myself being a little bit snobby, going, well, I, that state park person isn't necessarily a historian. And then I had to back off later and go, he is a historian of a certain kind, but he is not necessarily, I don't know that he has to have any training in the original documents on this or in why this mythology developed. And so, like, that, that sort of idea of there being some people who have some authority in it does allow us to have arguments within a certain realm where we're agreeing on certain things when you're within a, a particular discipline. But it does mean you're not necessarily listening all the time to everything that's outside the box and may not be getting in a big discussion with that. And so I, I, I don't know if that is useful in terms of thinking about how as Adventists I think about being radical in terms of everybody can interpret the Bible for themselves, but also having some sense of where we, what commonality and where we come around, which is that the Bible is a sacred text that we take seriously, and that's going to be the basis for our conversation. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's absolutely right. I think in Adventism, even, even the most radical of us, uh, I hope you felt my quotes there. Um, we'll, we'll at least feel the need to wrestle with the text, right? I mean, we're, we may want to have every argument about why a certain thing needs to be thought about differently or dispelled or have a logical argument about why it, why we need to look at it in an, in an atypical way or in a progressive way or in whatever way we're arguing for. But we're still going to say the text has to be dealt with. And so there's at least a foundational thing uh, in Adventism. In Adventism, you're going to have to wrestle with Ellen G. White. And we accept that. Even if, even if the wrestling is to, for lack of a better term, dispel her or discount her or deal with or to deal or, or to in some way you know, please don't confine me to the fiery flames, discredit her. Like it, it, but we still realize that that's something that must be dealt with within this space. Mm -hmm. The question that we have to ask ourselves for the broader body politic is whether there's anything that we come back to uh, as a thing that we must wrestle with. Um, because I'm, because in, uh, I was a lawyer in my former life, the answer that quickly jumps to mind for me is the constitution. But mm -hmm. even then I want to say, we're not really looking to that document on a day to day commonality, political basis for our conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, it is the common foundation. 
Um, especially if we're if we are if we are in the political realm trying to make change happen, you're at least trying to do it in a way that it will pass constitutional muster. But of course, even today, we're we're finding the court politicized at least no, not not even at just, just the highest level, but at all levels, such that questions about whether something will pass constitutional constitutional muster is not about the constitution itself or any particular legal philosophy but who are the people who are sitting on the high court, right? So what is the constitutional thing for our society at large? And then to get back to the thing that Alex wants us to talk about at least a little bit, is how does an Adventist find themselves within that conversation uh, and whether finding a common a common point is, is something that's meaningful to any of us who, who walk in this particular faith tradition. I'm going to jump in uh, because you invoked my name and also, <laughs> and, and also because I've got um, an anecdote that I'd like you to both respond to. Um, and uh, I was uh, having a conversation with an attorney friend of mine who's more conservative in his politics and he was sort of defending the current um, hearings that are happening about um, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. And I was talking about, or we were both talking about her religious background, and he was sort of defending her against critics who think her religion is weird or in some way um, going to um, impact her judicial um, decision making, and w- one of the things that he turned back on me—he he grew up Adventist like me—he said, "Well, you know, if it was an Adventist up there, people would be digging through kind of Adventist history and beliefs and and looking for ways to discredit that person, even if they had a um, long record of serious." even if ideological decision-making. And what he said, and I'd love for you to respond to this as we kind of explore this idea of, of faith and politics or our politics informed by faith in some way, um, if not trust, is that he said, you know, I'm okay with her. She went to good schools. She, you know, is recognized in her discipline as a professional and she has diverse conversation partners. And what he meant by that is that, you know, she is up there presenting, she's getting uh, feedback. Um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that idea that um, somebody can be sort of, you know, ideologically rigid, um, but they are um, seeking out a difference of opinion. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's ideal. Um, I don't, I don't, I want to be in a, so whether this is me being an Adventist or whether this is me being a 21st century American, United Statesian specifically, um, is I want there to be debate about, about politics. I want there to be contested elections. I want, I, even though every inch of my emotional being wants there are only to be people who agree with me politically in power. The rational side of me knows that's not okay. You know, like I, we need there to be diversity. I want my team to win. And if I get too wedded 
to my team, my, my political team or whatever, and it's them at any cost, then that's problematic. I, some days I feel like I'm going to, like, this is all falling apart and it's terrible and it's a disaster. And then the Holy Spirit tells me, what is actually, where is my hope? Where is my faith? And what am I saying about the generations and centuries and millennia of people who lived under tyranny and bad government and still worked for the beloved community that still worked to lead to lend love and, and forgiveness and flourishing to humanity and to where they were at. And so that's where, that's the perspective I have to always come back to as a Seventh-day Adventist, even though as a citizen of the United States, I have a, I do feel I have an obligation not to turn my back on my wider community, but to vote and work for justice. Yeah, no, I, there's, there's so much that I want to respond to in that. So first, I, I, I do think that um, um, a friend of mine and, and, and uh, well, a former classmate, I really shouldn't call him a friend, we don't go out for lunch, but um, <laughs> uh, a former, former classmate of mine, now a writer at the, uh, at the Nation, Ellie Mistal, um, talked about the idea that the election of our lives, the, the most important election of our lives was, is not this one. Um, it was actually 2016. But the, uh, and the left was sort of asleep at the wheel. Yeah, sure. And, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because the thing that you said that made me think of that was, I think, um, pro- people who consider themselves more progressive, who consider themselves left of center, forgot that the principles that you're fighting for, there is never a break. There is never a, 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 a timeout. There's never, there's, there's never an accomplishment. There isn't like, oh, this, this is done. And, and, I, and I feel like for those who, who are sort of left of center, they said, okay, well, we, we've accomplished all of the, we've gotten all these things, we've had all these victories, we've won all these court cases, we've won all these elections, we did this thing, we don't have to worry about X, whatever X is. <laughs> for for any particular person, and they forgot. I think the point that you made uh, so eloquently, which is the idea that the the if we believe uh, Dr. King that uh, the the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice, we forget that it doesn't bend on its own. Like it bends because we bend it towards justice. Um, and, and I think some people just thought it would just bend on its own, uh, and, the, and they're realizing that they're sadly, yeah. that they're sadly That's mistaken. Right. That's right. Um, the, the second thing, um, and, and this is where Adventism sort of really sort of creeps into my politics, because as you were talking, I was, I was disagreeing with you. And then you said the thing that, that I needed, needed to, needed to come back around, which is this, this idea that just because we know the end, it doesn't make wrong things right. Right. Prophecy exists, in my estimation, with the understanding that I can be wrong. Prophecy exists so that we are actually spurred to action. Right. Because when we look around us and we say, oh, goodness, this is the, the end is nigh," because we see the sign. That is actually supposed to spur us to greater action. It should lead us more towards making sure that justice is done in this earth and the next. Like, those types of things should spur us to action because we realize that the time is short. And that there isn't much time left. 
right. to, and, to extend these things to these people, who, to, to all of our neighbors around us. And your discussion of, of, of inevitability, uh, that's one of the five C's, as we say, of history and historical thinking is contingency. And it goes along with my Adventist theology of free will, which is, and, and the freedom, the maximal freedom that God has given us is that human beings have the ability to make choices that have consequences. Um, and my, this is one thing I, my students want to say, well, we had to do it this way because if we hadn't, we wouldn't have the country that we do now or things wouldn't have turned out. I'm like, you didn't have to turn out like it did now. It could have been different. And that different could have been worse, could have been better. We don't know. But don't think it had to be the way it did now. The other element I would say, again, is I, studying the 17th and 18th centuries, which are the era that we consider like the era of modern state formation, when I, I'm very suspicious of states in general, and I expect governments and politics to act in certain ways, it's almost impossible for them not to do that. And so anything that we're doing within the government and state is going to have hierarchy. It's going to have the threat of violence behind it. And as an advocate who wants to be part of the, you know, peace tradition, I, I know that that's what's going on. All government, all political, all state action has the threat of violence behind it. And that's problematic. And, and so this leads to my last point in this particular comment, which is we don't get to be innocent. And I think that's also what you were referring to that, you know, we want, we don't, we're like, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to be part of it because I don't, it's going to happen, but I just stayed out of it and it just did what it was going to do. And that was what was, we don't get to be innocent. I am culpable in the exploitation of capitalism. I, I am, I am betting my entire retirement on exploitation and capitalism, like with, with my, with the way I'm doing my investments and my, you know, retirement accounts and things like that. I don't get to be innocent. I don't get to say, I have to confess. And the fundamental posture of a Christian is confession. And so we always know that we're working in broken systems and we know that we're working, we're doing the best that we can in a broken earth that is, and that we're trying to lean into love. And John Guerra's song, Citizens, it's such a beautiful song about some of this, ends kind of with, we know that there's many ways to love, but winning isn't one. Like, as soon as I'm trying to win, you know, I'm, or be, again, be innocent, be pure, be the person who, like, there's no blame attached to me. We, we've lost already. That's not loving. Um, and so that's another thing I would just say, that we have to just accept that we're going to mess up and we're going to be part of systems that aren't pure all the time, and that yet God manages to work in spite of that and even through it sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the thing that jumped out at me uh, as you were just talking right now is sort of this complexity, right? That that it, that I guess really what we're talking about is sort of the complexity that's inherent in human existence, right? Mm-hmm. No one no one gets to have clean hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished uh, binging The Good Place, uh, which I will suggest to anyone sure. who, who's interested in that type of thing. Um, this concept of how do you determine, you know, goodness or, or in our language, uh, uh, more righteousness, right? How do we determine who, who, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? How do we figure this out? And what that show eventually got to was this idea that everybody's going to hell. Um, because... If we're looking at the consequences of our actions, and once again, these attenuated consequences, which is what you were speaking towards, at some point, our hands get dirty. Yep. So it's not just, 
is not just is my 401k, you know, uh, going to provide for my retirement, but how is that money being invested? Where is it being invested? Is every single company that my stock now exists in the type of company that does things, that only does things that I would support from an ethical perspective? The answer has got to be no. Right, right. And, and, while, and while I certainly try to do my best in, in terms of avoiding the, the big obvious things, <laughs> To sit here and argue that my that I go through my entire portfolio, um, you know, month after month, or week after week, or year after year, and and try to scrub it of all immorality, no one's doing that. Very few people are doing that. Let me say, let me not say no one. But but to even exist in the home that I existed, to drive the car that I drive, to 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 do any of these kinds of things. Biogasity, all of these things are filled with immoral processes at somewhere along the line. Right, right. And so, so what that says to me from a spiritual perspective is, first, once again, it spurs me to action, at the very least, to make some sort of effort to balance the scales. But also, it speaks to me of a gracious God. Beautiful, <laughs> who, beautiful. Yeah, who understands that complexity. And... And must spend most of his very long existence winking at our ignorance, um, and 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 taking us as we are, and not treating us as the sum total of our actions and their attenuated consequences. Because I think the good place is right. If that if God, were, if all God was doing was taking a record of what we've done, what we've done, and the consequences of what we've done. And uh, and then making a decision about our righteousness, and then uh, you know, spoiler alert: nobody's righteous. And, and 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 what I've seen is, or what I've come to understand, the more I consider it, is just how much grace God has given us. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, it's been great listening to both of you, and thanks for taking us through this exploration of um, the problems of, of epistemic closure and uh, helping us think about the connection between Adventist eschatology and our role in our communities. You're both um, more than just uh, words, though, because I know as we're wrapping up here, I will uh, testify as a witness to your actions. Jason, you texted me uh, recently and asked if I had a what was what was my plan for voting, and and uh, Lisa, I was with you in Alabama um, riding. Um, along a civil rights journey, visiting several museums and, and walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So I thank both yeah. of you for um, putting your words into action. Hmm. And yeah, well. I would love for both of you to, as we wrap up here, um, thinking about this idea of grace from God um, that we can share with each other. Um, and what, will uh what do you what can give us hope uh through these next few weeks and uh this this out, this election outcome that we don't know yet 
goodness, I, I'll I'll start here only to just get this over with. Uh, <laughs> uh, Alex, Alex always asks me what I'm hoping in, and I'm like, I never really have a good answer for this. Um, I, I think I think the thing that is giving me hope is actually the the thing that I think has been central to our conversation this afternoon, which which is the fact that regardless of the outcome, um, people will still be out there fighting for the good things that they believe in that regardless of the outcome, whether, you know, whether Trump is, is reelected or whether Biden is elected or whether we end up in some major constitutional crisis because of some weird thing that happens and it ends up being decided by Amy Coney Barrett and a five, four decision. <laughs> oh God, regardless no. Of- <laughs> I, hope, please. <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to think of the worst thing. <laughs> the, the, the truth of the matter is this. Whoever is president doesn't mean that there won't be hungry people that there won't be people within our own um, nation, state, town, neighborhood who find themselves oppressed in some way. Uh, None of that changes on November 4th, regardless of the outcome. None of that changes in, I think it's January 21st, but you know, mid January when, when the president, uh, when a president is either re-inaugurated or inaugurated uh, for the first time, none of that changes. And so the truth of the matter is the work is still left to be done. Um, and, and if we are people of faith who are moved to make society better for our neighbors around us, regardless of who they are, then there will still be plenty of opportunity for us to joy in that work, <laughs> regardless of, of, of the outcome of the election. And so I do uh, encourage everyone to have a voting plan and to, and to go out and vote uh, according to your conscience, uh, wherever that may lead you. But with the understanding that there will still be work left to do. And I have hope uh, that uh, the people who are doing that work will continue and that this period will spur people to new action that they had not considered before. Thank you. And for me, that being too trite, history gives me hope um, because I see what people have done under the most difficult of circumstances. And who are we to think that somehow everything, sh- our government should reflect all of our values and promote justice and that things should just be smoothly sailing along in terms of human flourishing. Um, but I will say more specifically, what gives me hope is local politics. And what gives me hope is that I'm part of a group of people working right now to try to remove a Confederate bust from our county courthouse lawn and just seeing how that's working and people getting in touch with their county commissioners and the discussion that that provokes and even maybe more specifically sitting with 15 people um, at socially distanced spaces in a park listening to someone who is running for Chattanooga mayor, which the election is not until next um, March. And hearing that person's ideas and their story and their passion for their fellow citizens and what they want to do. And I'm just encouraged by what happens on a local level, often in a nonpartisan way. And so that's that's an encouraging, hopeful thing for me. Well, it's been uh, really good uh, listening to both of you. Thanks so much uh, for talking with me today and for what you do for our communities, big and small. Yes, I knew Sister White.
we will not fear. 